Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we are in the midst of a series that we have called Good News. And this Good News series is walking us through the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 3. Romans 1 through 3 is a great section of God's Word where the Apostle Paul is going to describe the good news of Jesus Christ, how sinful people like you and me could be reconciled to a holy God. That's what's described in Romans 1 through 3. And we began that, that series a few weeks ago. Today we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, and we're going to see the next installment in this series. But before we, we get there, I want to just make an observation about life. That observation is this. We like to divide the world up into good guys and bad guys. We like to divide the world up into good guys and bad guys. Now, this is true in our lives in many areas, but it's especially true when we think of the stories that we tell and the stories that we like. Think about movies for just a minute. Movies have within them some of the greatest bad guys and good guys that we know. For instance, Darth Vader, classic bad guy. Now, some of you might be sitting there going, but wait a minute, what about the end of Return of the Jedi? I'm not talking about that, okay? We're talking episode four or in five only, okay? Darth Vader was a bad guy in those times, classic bad guy. Now, who was Darth Vader's counterpart? Who was the good guy against him? Luke Skywalker, right? Classic good guy, classic bad guy. We're used to dividing the world up into these categories. Now, that example, you know, fits my 1970s, early 80s growing up experience, but it may not fit the experience of everybody in this room. So I thought, well, maybe I'd find a little more contemporary example. So I'd think about uh, this, this guy named Hans of the Southern Isles. Does anybody know this guy? Uh, I had somebody in the, in the, come up to me after the first service and say, I don't even know who you're talking about with that. Don't worry, just ask anybody under 12 and they will sing the answer to you, okay? Um, Hans of the Southern Isles, look at his beady eyes, just, just, you know, just kind of makes my skin crawl looking at this guy, right? Classic bad guy. Now, who was the good guy opposite Hans? Christoph, thank you. Christoph was kind of the classic. Now, there were two great heroines in this, in this story of Frozen, uh, but Christoph was the good guy, classic good guy, Hans, classic bad guy. We're used to this in our movies. But you know what? Good guys and bad guys, that differentiation is something that is not only found in cinema. It's also found in sports. For instance, you could take those guys, the Texas Longhorns, um, and, then, and then you could put them up against those guys, the Oklahoma Sooners. Now, Here's the thing, I'm not going to tell you who is good and bad in that. I'm just going to leave it to your own conscience to decide, okay? Um, but, but we are used to dividing the world up into good and bad. This is, this is what we do, right? We're used to this in many different areas. And because of that, it has a tendency to influence even how we view more important things, um, like humanity's relationship with God. It's possible for us to view the world in good guys and bad guys. And here's the difficulty with us beginning to view the world as good guys and bad guys. When we begin to view the world as good guys and bad guys, what happens is 
we begin to think that certain sections of the Bible that talk about the wrath of God being revealed against humanity, we think that only applies to the bad guys. We might hear the message that we we talked about last week as we looked at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, and we talked about the wrath of God being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. We might hear that and we might begin to think, we're tempted to think, that that is a verse that is talking about Adolf Hitler. That is a verse that is talking about some ISIS henchman who is beheading someone in the Middle East. But it's certainly not talking about people like you and me. It's talking about the bad guys, not the good guys. It's possible for us to divide the world up in such a way that we see the wrath of God coming against other people, but certainly not coming against us. I think when Paul continued in his letter to the Romans in in chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, part of his, his mission, part of his purpose as he wrote those words was to make sure that we didn't divide the world up into good guys and bad guys. Paul wrote chapter 2 of Romans to leave no loophole, to show that the world is not made up of Longhorns and Sooners, of Darth Vader's and Luke Skywalker's, of Christoph's and Hans's, that the world is made up of one category of people, humanity, and all are stained by sin. All fall short of the glory of God. All are under the wrath of God apart from Christ. This is the argument of Romans 2, and we're going to see that today. So if you were here last week and you heard the message and you thought that message talks about some real trouble for some other folks, today we'll be challenged that it talks about real trouble for all folks, including you and me. We see this in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. I'm going to read these verses for us, and then we'll back up and dive into it, see the truth here in in three movements. Romans 2, verse 1, Paul writes and says this. He says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. 
For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, in these 16 verses, we are going to see three things today that describe humanity and how there is one category. There's just an us, there's not a them. We see this in three movements. The first point we see is this. The standard for God's judgment is perfection. The standard for God's judgment is perfection, verses 1 through 5. To say it another way, the standard for God's judgment is not, am I better than the person next to me? The standard for God's judgment is, how do I stand up against a holy God? The standard for God's judgment is perfection. We see this in the first five verses. Now, before we can dive in and look at those five verses, though, it's helpful for us to, again, remember the context of this book. In chapter 1, we've seen the good news, where we get our our title for this series. The good news of Jesus Christ is described in verses 16 and 17. Paul writes and says, "'For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek.'" For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the good news. The good news is that the righteousness of God is delivered to us. The righteousness of God is given to us, not as something that we earn, but as something that God gives to us by His grace and we receive by faith. This is the good news. And the reason why, we saw last week, the reason why we need God to give us His righteousness is because we have none of it on our own. Verse 18 says it this way, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul says that all of us have this problem, and the problem is that we have lived out an unrighteous life. We have lived out our life as if God didn't exist. We have detached ourselves from Him. We have done whatever we wanted. We have wandered away, and the result of that is this consequence of the wrath of God being revealed against us. Now, that, that is pretty strong, the wrath of God revealed against us, and it's so strong that we have a tendency to want to downgrade it. We want to make the gospel about assuaging just some kind of a guilty feeling that we have. We just want to clean us up a little bit. We want to take the gospel and make it all about us having a better purpose for life or, or us having some different form of encouragement in one way or another. And certainly the gospel provides encouragement and certainly the gospel provides purpose. But at the core of the gospel, there's something far greater than that, far more than just God giving us a purpose In the gospel, Jesus Christ absorbs the wrath of God that was intended for us. John Stott said this about this verse. He says, we we have a tendency to cheapen the gospel if we represent it as deliverance only from unhappiness, fear, guilt, and other felt needs instead of as a rescue from the coming wrath. See, we need to remember that 
as humans, we are separated from God. As humans, we are sinful people. And apart from Christ, the wrath of God will be revealed against us with dire consequences. This is the state, this is the nature of humanity. We need to remember that. And Paul, as he writes chapter 2, again, he's trying to, to answer the question of anybody who wants to divide the world into good guys and bad guys, anybody in the world who maybe wants to say, you know, Paul, what you said was true as it pertains to the Adolf Hitlers of the world, but it's certainly not true for me. Paul writes and, and argues against that line of thinking. And he does so in a way that was common in the New Testament time in a style called a diatribe. A diatribe is where an author would make a caricature of an argument against him, and then he would have an argument on paper with them, where he would raise objections, and then he would answer them. It's a diatribe style. It was common in the first century. Paul employs that in chapter 2, but who is he arguing against? Well, it's possible that Paul was arguing against a line of thinking that would have been common associated with a a Gentile, non-Christian man by the name of Seneca, who had great influence in Rome at the time. Biblical scholar F.F. Bruce has talked about Paul and, and Seneca and their differences in his commentary. This is what he says. He says, We know that there was another side to the pagan world of the first century than that which Paul has portrayed in the preceding paragraphs, meaning chapter 1. What about a man like Paul's illustrious contemporary Seneca, the Stoic moralist, the tutor of Nero, Seneca might have listened to Paul's indictment and said, yes, that is perfectly true of great masses of mankind, and I concur in the judgment which you pass on them. But there are others, of course, like myself, who deplore these tendencies as much as you do. Not only did he, meaning Seneca, exalt the great moral virtues, but he exposed hypocrisy. He preached the equality of all human beings. He acknowledged the pervasive character of evil. He practiced and inculcated daily self-examination. He ridiculed vulgar idolatry, and he assumed the role of a moral guide. It's possible in chapter 2 that Paul is arguing against someone like Seneca. Let me put that in some contemporary context for you. It's possible that in our contemporary context, Paul is arguing against someone who is a moral person, someone maybe who is following another religion in in some kind of a dogmatic way. They do a lot of good things. Some world religious follower that seems to have a a strong amount of obedience in their life. They tend to to love those on the street around you very well. They're they're very regular and adamant in their worship attendance. They might not, not drink as much as others. They might not engage in certain sinful activity on the outside as much as others that you know, even other Christians that you know. Paul is arguing against those kinds of people who might want to make an argument before God that they are somehow removed from the revelation of God's wrath because they are one of the good guys. You ever had that thought? Have you ever known that person? You thought, well, they must be outside of the wrath of God because they're just such a good person. Paul makes an argument against the good people like Seneca, the good people like we know, in chapter 2. And the point of his argument is that all of us as humans are under the wrath of God. And we're under the wrath of God because God's standard is not, am I better than the next guy, but how do I compare to the holy God of the universe? 
And when that's the comparison, we all fall short. In this diatribe, Paul begins and he talks about this oh man, this this Seneca-like man. He says, you have no excuse, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Here's the point that Paul is making. Anyone who is living a moral life, by the very fact that they're living that moral life, are admitting that there is a right and there's a wrong. There's a way to do things and a way not to do things. But the problem is that people who are living a moral life are not perfect. Even though they might get some things right, they're going to get other things wrong. Therefore, it's wrong for them to think that God will excuse his wrath upon them merely because they're better than the next guy because the wrath of God is is revealed against all unrighteousness, against all ungodliness, including that of the person that appears moral beside you. He does so by, by talking about how they do the very same things as those that Paul discussed in chapter 1. Now, what does he mean, they do the very same thing? Does this mean that every person has committed all the exact same sins? No, there's variety in our life. And, you know, if we're honest, all of us would say, you know what, there seems like there's some people who have made decisions in their life where their life looks even more messed up than mine, and mine's pretty messed up. We're tempted to grade life on a curve because we see a differentiation in different lives. What Paul is is talking about here, though, is that the problem is that None of us live a perfect life. When he says that all of us do the very same things, I think there's one of two possibilities that what he's referring to. One possibility is he's saying, you know, in this long list of sins that we saw in chapter 1, the end of chapter 1, Paul goes through a laundry list of sins. He talks about sexual sins. He talks about sins um, in, in the way that we treat others, the maliciousness that we, we exhibit towards them, slandering and lying and sins with our, our mouth and things like that. But he goes all the way down, he mentions all those things, but then he gets all the way down and he talks even about things like disobeying parents. I think what Paul was saying was you might make it and do the right things in certain categories, but in other categories, you're going to fall short. And that way, since the wrath of God is exhibited against all unrighteousness, against all ungodliness, all people are in trouble because the standard is perfection. One possibility is that he's saying you might have gotten some right, but certainly you've gotten others wrong. A second possibility, though, of what Paul is, is getting at here is he's, he's thinking of the words of Jesus. See, the words of Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 5 describe our sinfulness in categories that are radical. In, in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that any man who looks upon a woman and lusts after her in his heart has already committed adultery. And Jesus said, You have heard it said, do not commit murder, but I say that any one of you who looks upon another with, with anger has already committed murder in his heart. In those ways, maybe Paul was coming at this saying, you know, you may not have, have acted out in the same ways as these others who have sinned, but, but in your heart, you have fallen short. Either way, the the point seems to be that all people fall short of God's perfect standard. Therefore, grading on a curve simply doesn't work because the comparison is not with each other. The comparison is with the holy God. 
verses 3 and following, he continues this line of thinking. He says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Here's the argument. Paul's saying, hey, if you live a moral life, your life may seem like it's together, and you might think because of that that you've procured God's favor. But here's the reality. If you've sinned even once, that wrath is waiting for you. Even if you're not experiencing the full extent of its consequences now. God has given you this period of a reprieval of His wrath to give you time to repent, not to give you time to judge others or to give you time to continue on in your sin. He says, because of this hardness and impenitent nature of your heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself. The main argument of the first five verses of this section is that the standard is perfection and all of us fall short of that. This is not good news. This is bad news for us. This means that apart from Christ, all of us, every one of us in this room, falls short of God's glorious standard. But Paul continues his argument in verses 6 to 11, and he makes a second point. After saying that the standard is perfection, he says that judgment will be based on works. Judgment is based on on works. Now, when you hear that, that might sound funny to you. If you've been around the church for a long time, that might sound funny to you because we don't, A, like to talk about judgment very much. And when we talk about judgment, we want to talk about relief or reprieve. We want to talk about salvation in the face of judgment. And salvation is something that we see as, as not on the basis of works, but on the basis of grace. But very clearly in this section, Paul argues that judgment is based on works, and it flows very naturally with the other things that he has said. Look at what he says. This 6 to 11 really is one point that he's making. He says, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. The idea here is that God shows no partiality. God is going to judge all people, and He's going to judge them on the basis of what they do. That is the the, the measure, the standard by which God's judgment comes. The standard is perfection, and we are judged based on what we do in response to that standard. He says if you live a life that is good, if you pursue what is good, you do what is good, then you can attain eternal life. But if you live a life that is sinful, if you live a life that is bad, then you will experience the wrath of God and the dire consequences therein. That's the argument of what Paul makes in these verses. Now, that sounds challenging to us. It sounds difficult to us. But I think it's exactly what he says. Doug Moo in his commentary on Romans helps us make sense of this difficult section. This is what he says. He says, Paul agreed with the Jewish belief that justification could, in theory, be secured through works. 
where Paul disagreed with Judaism was in his belief that the power of sin prevents any person, even the Jew, who depends on his or her covenant status from actually achieving justification in that manner. While therefore one could be justified by doing the law in theory, in practice, it's impossible. It's as if Paul in this diatribe with a Seneca-like person is, is saying, yeah, sure, if somebody could live a perfect life, then they could attain salvation on their own. But they can't. Yeah, it's a fine argument, Seneca, if you want to look around the world and try to bring me the example of the person who's lived that out, but my guess is your efforts will be futile. You won't find that person because all have committed unrighteous acts, all have sinned, all have lived out some degree of ungodliness. Therefore, all humanity will be judged according to our works and will receive the wrath of God. See, judgment is based on works. Now again, this is trouble for us. If the standard is perfection and judgment is on the basis of works, then that leaves you and me who are sinful people who fall short of God's glorious standard in serious trouble because that means that God will want us to give an account for our actions. And if there is any sin that we have committed, it puts us under the wrath of God, every single one of us, people and preacher alike, all of us under the wrath of God, apart from what Jesus has done, because the standard is perfection and judgment is on the basis of works. We need to take just a moment, and I want you to think of one sin in your life. Now, you, I, you might think of a big one, you might think of a small one, but it didn't take very long, did it? Here's what this passage would, would, would teach to us. That because you could think of something, of anything, and you know what? If we gave enough time, you could think of several things. I could think of several things. Not about you, about me. That places us in the peculiar position of being under the wrath of God. That's Paul's argument here. There's not good people and bad people. There's not Luke's and Darth's. There's just people. And all of us have sinned. Third point that he makes here, third thing we need to see, beyond the standard is perfection, judgment is based on works. The third thing, all will be held accountable. Regardless of our background, regardless of our nationality, regardless of the church we belong to or don't belong to, regardless of if we speak English or another language, all will be held accountable. He says this in verses 12 to 16. He says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Here's the idea that he's saying. He says that everybody, whether they had the law or didn't, this is a way for a Jewish person to say all of the Jewish people and all of the non-Jewish people. If you're keeping score at home, that's everybody. Everybody is in trouble. He says, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. See, there were some who might want to say, you know what, I've, I've got the book. I, I know the right answers. I've, I've read it. I've had it read to me. I've, I've got 
God's word in some way, shape, or form. Therefore, I'm somehow exempt from God's wrath, from God's judgment, just merely because I've been educated in the ways of God or I've been a part of the right community. Paul writes and says, I don't care where you're from. I don't care what language you speak. I don't care what religion you've been indoctrinated into. Those things alone will not save you from anything because God is impartial, whether you are Jew or Gentile. Wrath will come to you. It says in verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Here's the point of what I think he's, he's saying there. He says, whether you have this book or you don't have this book, whether you had the Old Testament law or you didn't have the Old Testament law, you have a conscience inside of you that has some understanding of right and wrong. And it, it's impacted by our culture. It's impacted by the way we were raised. But, but everybody has got some sense of a conscience. And that conscience convicts us because we can't even live up to the parts of the standard we agree to, much less the parts that we can't. I might not know different aspects of the Bible, but, but I, I still could have within my soul a sense that I should love my neighbor or a sense that I should respect my parents or a sense that I should not commit murder. I, I could have those, those parts of my conscience that are there, and, and just by virtue of, of having those parts of my conscience but being un, unable to effectively and continuously live up to even those parts of the standard, I find myself under judgment. See, there's no one, no Jew, no Gentile who can escape the judgment of God. Warren Wearsby said of this, he says, You find among all cultures a sense of sin, a fear of judgment, and an attempt to atone for sins and appease whatever gods are feared. This admission of the conscience and its convicting effect, to me, is why there are so many religions in the world. People have a sense that there's a holy God and we've somehow offended Him and we've got to figure out a way to make good. Why there are so many religions in the world. But Paul writes to say that there is no amount of conviction that we have, no amount of offense that we have, no amount of of good effort that we could do that would provide the necessary means to reconcile us to God. On our own, The sin that we've committed places all of us, every person, good and bad, under the wrath of God. Now, if this was the end of the message, this would not feel like very good news. And as a matter of fact, what I've covered really covers the 16 verses that we read. But you know what? I I just can't leave the story there. Because there's so much more to the story than the 16 verses that we read today. See, the 16 verses that we read today, they talk about judgment. They talk about how this, the standard is perfection, and they talk about how judgment is based on works. And they talk about how everyone will be held accountable. And you know what? Judgment is based on works. But here's what else is true. Judgment is based on works, but salvation, salvation is by grace through faith. And that is the good news. See, the good news is that that God sent Jesus, His Son, into the world 
to live an absolutely perfect life. Jesus lived out perfection on this planet so that when Jesus would be judged, if he would be judged based on his earthly life, he would have passed. The test that you would fail, Jesus passed. The test that I would fail, Jesus passed because he lived out a perfect life. But then God had Jesus in the counsel of his wisdom. He had Jesus go to the cross and to die on the cross. And what God offers us is this amazing exchange. This is the good news. He offers to take the righteous life of Christ and to credit it to us, to wrap us in it, to clothe us in it, so that when God looks at us in judgment, he judges us not on the basis of on our works, but on the basis of Jesus' works, so that we might pass. And then God takes all of the sin that we've committed, and he takes it off of us, and he attaches it to Jesus. And so when Jesus died on the cross, the wrath of God that was stored up against you might have been fully satisfied on the cross so that you might be righteous and you might be forgiven, so that I might be righteous, so that I might be forgiven. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. And you know what my, my, my great hope is for you today? If you walked in here today thinking that the world was divided into good people and bad people, and you were one of the good ones. If you walked in here today thinking, you know what, there certainly is someone who is worthy of the wrath of God, but it is not me. My hope and prayer for you today is that God, through the power of his word, changed your heart to understand and realize that because of the sin that you've committed, the wrath of God needs to be satisfied. And it either can be satisfied on the basis of your works or on the basis of the work of Christ. He does this that we might trust in Jesus and his goodness. Father God, thank you that you have reached out to us and given to us that which we cannot earn. Father, thank you that the the wrath of God, thank you that you're a God of wrath. Thank you that you're a God who does not allow sin to go on because sin is hurtful and sin is painful. Thank you that you're a God who will deal with it. But Father, also thank you that you're a God who gives us an opportunity to have it not dealt with in our bodies but have it dealt with through Jesus on the cross. Father, I pray today for any who are here who have never placed their faith and their trust in Jesus, that they would do so and experience the life that he gives, the forgiveness that he gives, and the rescuing from wrath that he gives. Father, thank you that you've given us this section of your word, that it would remind all of us that every sin that we commit is worthy of wrath apart from Jesus and that Jesus was strong enough in his death to absorb all of the wrath that you have towards sin. Father, may you allow us to trust you today, the God who paid it all. 